Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. ARCHICAD is the official BIM software of the Entree Architect community. ARCHICAD BIM software enables design, collaboration, visualization, and project delivery no matter the project size or complexity. With flexible licensing options and a dedicated support team to guide us along the way, ARCHICAD is an ideal choice for firms and projects of any size. I encourage you to reach out and talk to the folks at Graphisoft by visiting our own dedicated webpage at graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. There's even an exclusive special offer waiting for our Entree Architect community. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. That's graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Rick Lindley, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, Mark. Glad to be here. I'm excited to spend some time talking about uh, the design of practice. Yeah, me too. It, you, uh, you and I have connected several times offline. You're a member of the Academy. You recently did an expert training session for us inside the Academy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I appreciate the work that you just shared with us. So thank you. Great. I will, I, let me introduce you. Um, Rick Lindley, 
leads Strong Practice Strategy, a business consultancy focused on helping leaders of evolving and emerging design firms to strengthen their practice. His work is informed by over 30 years of practice experience culminating in his role as principal and chief operating officer of a 200-person multidisciplinary, multi-location design firm. Rick taught professional practice at a master's level for 10 years. He's a frequent speaker at professional education sessions. And as I had mentioned, he, he actually has, has worked with our community several times. And he's also recently published his first book, Scoreboard Your Practice, Seven Numbers to Understand Your Design Firm's Financials. So he's writing for us. He's helping us. He's helping us build our firms and trying to make it in, in a way uh, that architects can understand. So, uh, Rick, it's great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. Let's start with you. Let's start with your origin story. Go back as far as you want to go back. Okay. When did you discover your passion to do, and, and who or what inspired you to get started? Okay, well, I knew you were going to ask me this question. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've been a student of your podcast. So, um, so I, I started, uh, I don't have any history of, uh, uh, building industry or architecture in my family other than uh, hammering nails into a wooden plank in my grandfather's basement that was probably as much family history and architecture so I'm a I'm a novice uh, from a family standpoint but I I, I knew you're gonna ask me this so I kind of divided my professional story up into kind of five chapters Great. so chapter chapter one started out with I, I did well in drafting in those days and um, uh, carpentry in high school. And I came, I, I naively thought that, well, I'm, maybe I should be an architect. And uh, I thought that was all about drawing buildings and building buildings. And uh, so I left home and I went off to school. And uh, while I was pursuing my degree, I worked in um, three or four uh, design firms, small firms, medium firms, large firms. Um, so I got a good sense of uh, kind of what that life was like. And, uh, and so I was Basically, this first chapter was kind of building my my professional skills and and all the other startup activities in life, like getting married and having kids and all that kind of stuff. And then chapter two is really I, I joined uh, the firm that I actually ended up retiring from. Uh, they were about 50 people at that time. Um, so, you know, I guess that's maybe considered a large practice. I learned my craft uh, uh, pencil on vellum and ink on mylar and pin, Me too. pin bar. I don't know if any of your... <laughs> Your listeners ever did pin bar drafting? I did not uh, do pin bar, but that was just before me. <laughs> okay. And then uh, then I remember the first computer was a 286 IBM computer that we had one of them in, the, in an office of 50 yes. people. Yep. And you had to book time on it. Um, and then, uh, you know, learning Lotus and WordPerfect. And, and, and then we purchased, uh, the firm purchased a... Uh, a GDS, uh, Tektronics hardware GDS graphic design system that was used by McDonnell Douglas. Um, that, so that was our first CAD system. Uh, and, uh, and then all the other stuff that goes along with, you know, um, understanding uh, your, your skills in practice, uh, you know, all the, the software we use today. Um, and so I focused, I, I started focusing on leading projects. Uh, you know, obviously I was a pair of hands to start with, but uh, evolved into, uh, I was very interested in the um, uh, the project leadership side of practice. So that, that involved being a project architect, project manager. And so I kind of spent about 10 years uh, learning, learning that um, skill set, how to lead a project, understanding project uh, financials and metrics and, uh, 
that took 10 years. So I don't know if that's because I'm a slow learner or I had poor mentors or whatever. But uh, then then I went on to uh, what I call chapter three, which was I, I read a book called Success Strategies for Design Professionals by the Cox Group, uh, the eastern seaboard of the U.S. Um, and, um, and that kind of turned me on to I realized the leverage for making uh, for better projects was to focus on the management of the practice. Um, so, so that's what I did. I, I, uh, I, I saw that that's where the leverage was. And so I moved my, I kind of pushed myself into an associate position in the firm and then a principal position and ended, ended my career as chief operating officer of the firm. I was kind of in that role for about 10 years as well. Um, and so that process allowed me to understand the firm, the practice financials, not just the project financials and what, what leading a practice was all about. And, uh, and we made a conscious decision in that chapter of my life as a firm to uh, move ourselves from being a generalist practice of 50 or 60 or so people at that point to being a more of a specialist practice. Um, and, uh, and so, so that's what we did. That's where we started to go. And so chapter four was while I was in the role of chief operating officer, I was part of the executive team that was tasked with growing the practice. And we ended up at when I retired, uh, 200 people. Um, and we did that organically and we did it through mergers and acquisitions. So, uh, so that was, you know, that's an interesting, uh, part of practices learning all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, and while all this is going on, I'm uh, in my role as chief operating officer, I'm, I'm looking for what I call the silver bullet to, uh, you know, what's the one thing, uh, yeah, maybe relates back to your, yeah, what's the formula? So, so I started looking for the formula. I, I looked at ISO, I looked at TQM, I looked at Project Management Institute, I looked at LEAD, I looked at LEAN. Um, so, you know, uh, a lot of that stuff and we kind of, you know, my team, we went through that stuff and some of it was great. Some of it we kind of forgot and moved on from, um, and and so then this chapter of my professional career, we uh, we actually got our practice up to about 200 people in multiple locations in the states and Canada, and um, and then we sold our practice to uh, to uh, uh, at the at that time they were about 6,000 people. Today there were over 50,000 people, and and the the successor firm um, continues to fall under that umbrella. Uh, so, uh, so I retired when I was 56. So I'm 65 now, so that's nine years ago. Um, and I never did find the silver bullet. I remember my uh, <laughs> the, my parting words was, uh, "I looked hard, guys, but I just never found it." Um, and so that brings me to my, my my the chapter that I'm currently in in my professional life was uh, uh, still kind of a grind. Uh, a gr I'm a grinder, so I'm kind of a sucker for for punishment. So I I just kept looking for the silver bullet, and um, and part of my search involved uh, what I, I found kind of a parallel universe um, in terms of the um, practice, and and that is uh, the marketing and agency world, advertising agencies. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. It's a kind of a parallel universe because um, there there are a bunch of creative firms creative people in creative firms. It's more or less a cottage industry like we are. Uh, our profession is, you know, a whole bunch of small firms and a few really big firms. Um, and that's that's the way they are. They have a, a few really big advertising agencies, but a whole bunch of small ones. 
and it's all business to business. It's not it's not a retail thing. And and the problems that trying to solve are complex, just like our problems. And so uh, the thing I found doing that research is that they that world is much better than I think our world is at uh, things like how to price work, how to pitch work, how to build confidence in your teams. And and you've had some of those folks on your yeah. As part of your group, Blair Enns, right. um, others are David Baker, uh, Tim Williams, Jonathan Stark, I know has been on yeah. your yeah. your program. So th- those are really interesting people for me. I've been following them. A um, uh, great podcast called The Two Bobs. Um, yeah. Uh, when you, when you yeah. listen to The Two Bobs podcast, if, if you don't realize that they're talking about advertising agency, you would think they're talking about architects. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it, it's a, it's a great place. If you want to go deep into this stuff, that's a great place to go. Yes. Uh, and that's what I've been doing. Um, um, and so, uh, so I realized that, uh, you know, we are, we've had a kind of a relentless focus within the practice of architecture on, on the practice of design, like getting better at our craft. Uh, and I think that that's forced us, we've kind of got blinders on in terms of, um, in terms of, just focusing on the practice of design. Um, you know, we're, we're generalists when we should be have more expertise. We're, we, we focus on time instead of results. We focus on project metrics instead of practice metrics. Um, and we're, we're, our, pri- our pricing approach is cost-based instead of value-based pricing. Things that, that you have been discussed, that you've been discussing with, with lots of people in your group. And, and so, so then I kind of came, the light bulb kind of came on and I realized I know what the silver bullet is now. It's not the practice of design. It's the design of practice. And that is, that is where the leverage is for our profession, I think. Uh, and other professions have figured that out too. Yeah. Uh, but I think we're a little late to the game here. Um, so I started a consultancy because I wanted to bring that perspective to the people I knew in my community and and beyond. And um, so I've been helping, what I've been doing in my consulting practice is helping firms design their practices. And um, so I, I think that's really the only, the only way that our profession is going to be able to move forward. So that's been my focus. Um, uh, and uh, and so what I part of part of this thing has been codifying a, a roadmap, which is what I talked about in the October session, the uh, expert session, uh, a roadmap for practice. So you know we're we're all designers, kind of ironic, but we're, we're designers, and yet I don't think we're doing a very good job designing our practices. So so that's what uh, that's what that that roadmap is about. And then I went on as part of that roadmap is. Uh, getting a better understanding of your financials, and so I wrote the book, Scoreboard Your Practice, and uh, and you know that's that's kind of where I've gotten to in my yeah. professional career. I don't know what's next, but that's where I am right now. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you're in this this point of your life, uh, doing the things that you're doing because our profession needs you. Uh, it needs the the information that you are providing. Uh, the the expert training session was fantastic. Um, it's available as uh, as in the membership. If anybody's in the membership, you can go search the uh, the expert training sessions. And Rick's session is in there. Um, you talked about the difference between practice of design, which is what most architects focus on, and the design of practice. Can you dive into that a little bit and and let's have a chat about what that means and how that could help our our listeners? 
Uh, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that, that difference is just a turn of phrase, but I think the difference is, is critical. Um, yeah. I think it's uh, the root of a lot of our, our struggles as, as, as a profession. We tend to think that getting better at our craft and increasing our skills will lead to a better business. Well, you've had Michael Gerber on your program or he's Context and Clarity. Yeah, Context studies. and Clarity yeah, Live. Yeah. yeah, he's on yeah, YouTube yeah. on our channel. Yeah, right. And uh, he talks about the fact that just because you know what you're doing from a craft standpoint, from a professional standpoint, doesn't mean you know how to run a business. Right. And so he talks about the entrepreneurial myth, the e-myth. Um, and I think we're we're architects kind of, well, so I'm not very good business person. So what, you know, like um, I'm willing to sacrifice that for, you know, we're kind of known for sacrificing everything for our craft. Uh, yes. Not professionals, I, you know, we're, we're into it, but I don't think, I, you know, we, we sacrifice our compensation. We sacrifice our long-term sustainability personally from our health standpoint. And also in terms of our practices, the sustainability of our practices. I, I think, you know, it's a noble pursuit. Um, and I, I think our, we architects think that, uh, uh, good enough is never good enough. It, it, we have to get better and better and better. And, you know, that's, that's a great sentiment, but, and it's noble, but I think we already are good enough. And I think we already are impactful. And, uh, but I, I think we can continue to do good work and have an impact without having to sacrifice so much. So, um, so to make that happen, I think we have to shift our focus to the design of our practice and we need to find ways to communicate our value, the value of our work. We need to get better at that and we need to uh, figure out how to get more broadly recognized for, for what we do. Yeah. And, and you do that as your, as consultant, you do that through, through the authorship of your book. Um, at the expert training session, you talked about that roadmap, the, the model that you, um, when you're talking about you know, the design of your practice, uh, can we dive into that a little bit and share a little bit about what that roadmap looks like and how that model works? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, well, in the October session, I, uh, in, in simple terms, the road, the roadmap is really simple. It's kind of ridiculously simple. Um, it starts with, do you know what your goals are for your practice? Uh, and, and those goals have to be based on your current reality. Uh, so step one, do you know your goals? Do you know where you're starting from? Um, and then you've got to position your firm and you've got two constituencies that you're positioning for. You're positioning for clients and you're positioning for staff. Big, big issue these days. When finding. you say positioning, what does that mean? Okay. So positioning means establishing your, uh, where you are, where you have expertise to offer in the marketplace. Okay. And making some choices. You you know, the generalist mindset is I can do anything for anybody, anytime. Uh, and the, uh, uh, that's a, to me, that's a crappy position to be in because the marketplace isn't looking for generalists anymore. The marketplace is looking for specialists. It's not, it's not that we should, we should become specialists just to be specializing. The world doesn't want us to be generalists anymore. That used to be the case, but it's not the case anymore. So we've got to position ourselves. And so that's how we attract clients to ourselves. That's how we attract staff to come to our practices. Um, uh, and then, and then once, you've, once you've established your position in the marketplace, uh, you've got to figure out how to – every firm has an operating system. And the operating system has to complement the positioning. So if you're a generalist practice, and there are lots – 
in in general a struggle but um there are some that are are very successful but but most struggle because yeah, of, the, of the, the the model yeah and i i would i'll, I'll we can offline. We can have an argument. You can you can name those what you think are generalist practices. Yeah, they're most likely I'll, specialists. I'll show you how they aren't. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to be devil's um, advocate here. That's I'm okay. all I'm all on your side, Rick. You know that. Uh, the listeners know that too. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, so the, this uh, this thing I call alignment, aligning your operating system with your positioning, and uh, so generalists uh, have a certain. Uh, operating system tends to be all over the place. Um, specialists out of, out of can necessity, focus. Right? Out of necessity, yeah. it's all yeah, over the place because, because they're generalists. To... They're serving all these different right. markets. Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. So, uh, so, so positioning properly and then getting your operating system, your firm's operating system to line up with your positioning. So that's the three step. That's the, the roadmap in, in, you know, real simple terms, but, um, you know, I think the the key is uh, knowing where you're starting from because you know I'm if I, if I as a as a teenager wanted to be a, a NBA player, uh, my current reality is I'm five foot seven. You know that is not going to happen. So I I need to ch I need to ch adjust my goals to suit my current reality, right? And and some firms are. Uh, are have certain DNA. I call it their DNA. And uh, some of those. That DNA may be appropriate for some special, some sorts of specialization and positioning, but it may not be appropriate for others. So you gotta, you gotta understand where you're starting from. Um, so, so that's very important. And then once you've established your your goals, uh, this, the thing about designing a practice which, that's different than designing a project is that a project has a start and a finish. Your practice doesn't. Well, maybe it has a start and a finish, but. But what you're what you're working on as you're designing is it's an iterative process, right? You're positioning and then you're aligning your operating system. Then the world changes and you have to reposition and then reset your operating system. So it's always positioning and aligning. And while you're doing that, you're keeping score, uh, scoreboard. You're keeping score of your practice, and you're also uh, looking at um, am I the right size that I need to be for, based on my goals and, you know, what I'm trying to do in the practice in, in, in my, in my practice. So, you know, my job as chief operating officer of our firm was the CEO and the board, uh, would set the direction, would establish the position that the firm wanted to be in, in the marketplace. And then my job as CEO with my team was to, uh, align the operating system of the firm with the positioning. So that would be things like, how, how do we market? How do we price? How do we deliver our projects? That Depending on your position, all those things are different. Those aspects of an operating system are all different for different firms with different specialization. If they, and yet I think we get caught up in this best practice mindset where uh, HOK's best practice is the same as Con Peterson Fox. You know, the, the, they may be, but they may not be, um, depending on what their positioning is in the marketplace. So, so you know, so those, that's, th that's the, to me, that's the roadmap is goals, positioning, alignment. Right. And the operating, operation system is what you just said. It's, it's all of the systems that you use to operate your firm, right? So your marketing system, your right. sales production system, all the pieces that make your firm work together are your operators for clarification. Yeah. And, and the biggest one is uh, your people. How, how, how do you compensate? How do you hire? How do you retain? How do you engage, you know, uh, in, 
in our in our world people is your biggest expense in any design firm people is your biggest expense whether you're a solo practitioner or a, a hundred person firm so um, yeah, so people is a big component of that operating system. And the way people are treated in different kinds of firms is usually, if, if it's done right, is a function of the way they position themselves in the marketplace for both staff and clients. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by RCAT.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered, and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, aka CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by ArtCat. Listen and subscribe right now at ArtCat.com slash podcast. That's ArtCat.com slash podcast. A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed, every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. You also mentioned earlier that in order to do all of this, you need to keep track. And you talked about a scoreboard, um, which I right. love. I love, you know, sort of simplifying it into here's how it's done and here's how you keep track of it. Uh, you, you wrote the book called Scoreboard Your Practice, Seven Numbers to Understand Your Design Firm's Financials. So you're focused on financials with this scoreboard. Can you talk a little bit about this scoreboard and how it works and how our listeners might be able to uh, to apply it to what they do? Sure. Uh, well, I, I think uh, start with where how we do things now, um, which is poorly. <laughs> uh, I, I think as a profession, we 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 understand our project financials. I think pretty well, uh, although lots of discussion on Entree Architect about well, what what kind of uh, software should I be using to track my projects? And 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 you know, some people do it with Excel spreadsheets, and some people don't do it at all, and some people some firms do it with uh, you know monograph or whatever. Um, so uh, when we you keep track Rick, of our hours. When you when yeah. you when you talk about the project finance, are you talking just okay? Just... So I'm talking about. The efficiency, how, how well is a project doing? We often use terms like multipliers and, and uh, utilization rates and, and uh, direct labor versus indirect labor and all these terms that a lot of us don't really care much about because <laughs> we're focused on our, on our craft. Um, but uh, project managers uh, do care about those numbers. And so there, it, but those are measuring individual projects right. uh, separate from the firm overall. So, so the the scoreboard is a is a way to measure the overall practice, not projects. So okay. I think you know our mindset is well. What do you mean? Our 
our practice is our project. So if we if we add up project A, project B, project C, right. that will equal our practice. Um, but you know, I think that's the wrong approach. That's kind of a bottom up approach. Add up all our projects, and there's our practice. I think we should think of it in terms of what are our goals for our practice. Um, design design the financials for the practice, and then slot the projects into that in service of that goal for the overall firm. Right. Okay. And another reason to have a specialty uh, and position yourself within the market, because that makes that process easier. A lot easier. A lot easier. That's very important. So so I think we, we need this kind of top-down approach, which is what the, the scoreboard yep. takes a top-down approach. And it's kind of a conceptual approach. I'm not an accountant. I don't have any, I don't have any, I'm not a CPA. I don't have that kind of training. I don't, I don't want, I didn't want to learn that stuff. Um, but as a chief operating officer, I got exposed to a, 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 the firm's financials and uh, it was always hard to talk to my partners and, and staff about how the firm was doing. They were all focused on projects. Um, so, so the book is kind of a conceptual top down approach. It's about how, how do, how do we measure the firm? Where do we find that information? Um, how do you keep it straight in your head? Because that stuff is hard for architects to keep straight in their heads. It's hard to communicate to your bankers, your other shareholders. Um, in fact, I, one of my ASG um, uh, colleagues uh, mentioned that his spouse is his banker. And, uh, and so um uh, so the scoreboard helps to bridge that gap uh, between uh, people who understand financials and people who don't, uh, like us, for the most part. So, uh, so the idea is uh, to uh, try and tackle the problem that uh, that the uh, architects are often encouraged um, by both their profession and their accountants to understand their financials from an accounting perspective. Um, but that's that I don't think that works. Uh, I, I, I've never seen it work. Uh, and, and primarily it's because we don't want to be bookkeepers and accountants. We want to understand only enough of this stuff to run our practices and to run them well. But, but really we don't need to understand a, a lot more. So, um, so it needs to be simple. It needs to be, for me, I felt it needed to be graphic uh, and it needs to be visible, something that you could post up on the wall. And so that whoever you wanted to see it, some firms are more open than others, but whoever you want to see it can understand it at a glance where, where you're at as a practice. And, and so that's what this scoreboard does. Um, it's, it's actually modeled on, um, on a call out that you'd find on uh, any drawing, uh, you know, circle with a line through it. And uh, it's modeled on that call out. We use those call outs to navigate our way around drawing sets. And uh, I think the scoreboard can be used to navigate our way around our practices financials uh, so there are seven numbers so what, how does that work where what are the seven numbers? okay so so those uh those so there's seven numbers and one ratio which is a ratio of two of the numbers so the first one is um how many full-time equivalents do you have in your practice that's that's you can go around if, if you're in a room these days or on a Zoom call. <laughs> um, you can you can look around, count heads, figure out how many of them are full time, how many of them are part time. Do a cut, quick calculation, and you got full time equivalent. So if you're solo practice, that's easy one. Uh, if you've got four or five people and a couple are part time, you might have a 4.3 uh, FTE count. So you need that number one. Then you need to know what your net fee is for. Um, for your practice. And, and really simply net fee is all the money that comes in, all, 
which is gross or gross income. Um, just a quick aside here. Yep. The terminology is is uh, is great for accountants, but doesn't work for us. We we have way there's way too many terms out there. Uh, cost of goods sold, EBITDA, uh, net revenue, net fee, net income. I mean, it's all Greek to us. So uh, so I've tried to stick to really simple terminology. So net fee is take your gross fee, subtract out your subconsultants like structural mechanical electrical if you happen to be paying for paying them subtract out any reimbursables that are going to be the clients going to pay for subtract those out and that's your net fee real simple then you have um, then you have three parts of that net fee. Uh, part one is your your um, uh, payroll so uh, and that in a, in a well-run firm that usually is about half of your net fee 50 percent of your uh, and then you have your operating expenses, which is all, you know, the lights, janitors, services, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, it's a very long list. And if you look at a profit and loss statement, a P&L statement, um, it makes up most of your P&L statement. So, so, you know, but it's really the one number that's important. You can dig into and you need to. But And then the third number, and by the way, operating expenses in a well-run firm should be about one quarter of your net fee. 25%. Okay. Uh, and then the last number that makes up, that is, makes up, I call it the pie, uh, the net fee pie, uh, is operating profit. And in a well-run firm, that should be 20 to 25% of your net fee, which is operating profit. That's not all in my pocket profit, but it's, it's, uh, it's what you get to work with as, as a owner of, or leader of a practice. So, so that's the, uh, so that's the three parts of the net fee pie. And then a few, a couple of other things. You've got to, you got to know what your um, your pipeline is. I, I call that the crystal ball. You know what what kind of work is coming up on your uh, for for your practice. So uh, uh, and and there are ways to uh, project to estimate your pipeline. Pipeline is made up of two parts. Part one is the work you already have, but haven't haven't you have a contract for it, but you haven't finished the work. So that's a chunk of work that might last for the rest of the year or it might last it might have five years worth of work that's under contract the other part of backlog or of uh, so that's backlog the other part of the pipeline is um, prospects and that's the stuff that you haven't got a contract for but you've got you think you have a pretty good chance of getting it uh, and um, so in the book I share a, a really simple uh, approach to figuring out what your prospects are going to be uh, mathematically uh, by factoring fees, et cetera. Uh, and so, so, so those are the, those are the seven, uh, and one more number is how much cash do you have on hand? How much cash do you have if maybe a pandemic happens or, or uh, uh, one of your, one of your clients says, oh, interest rates are too high. Uh, I have to, I have to bail on this project. Uh, you know, so do you have some cash to tide yourself over for a couple or three months? Um and then the one ratio that is kind of if you if you only know one number in your practice, it should be this ratio of net fee per full time equivalent. So, uh, so just as an example, a uh, a struggling practice, the way I would define a struggling practice, does about a hundred does less than one hundred and twenty thousand dollars per full time equivalent of net fee. And and when I say full time equivalent, that's everybody. That's administrative people, principals, and staff. That's everybody. And that's every head on the zoom call or around the room. Um, 
So, uh, so struggling firms, less than 120,000 strong firms, um, 120 to 170,000 net fee per FTE. Um, and, uh, I call them super firms is 170 and up of net fee per FTE. So, you know, if you're doing $200,000 of net fee per FTE, so if you're a three person firm and you're doing $600,000 in net fee, then that's 200,000 per head, right? And that's that's a very good position to be in within our industry. When you look at benchmarks like Dell Tech and, and others, that's that would be, I, I call that a super firm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so those numbers will tell you a lot about your practice. Uh, just knowing though, just keeping those seven numbers top of mind, this this graphic diagram that I've that I've created helps to do that. It's kind of a uh, back of the napkin kind of thing that you can do. You don't need software. All you need is a pencil and a napkin, a pen and a napkin, um, to keep track of your numbers. And as I said, those numbers will tell you tell you a lot about. Uh, you know, whether your clients are happy or not, those numbers will tell you whether your clients are happy because, because if you're not getting paid, uh, you don't have cash on hand. And so it's probably because something's wrong in, in that uh, area. Uh, your payroll number will tell you how efficiently you're executing your work and generalists tend to execute it less efficiently efficiently because they're always learning a new thing, whereas the experts already know it. And so they can execute that work quicker. And that, so their payroll number doesn't have to be as extravagant. Uh, so the, you know, so the, all those numbers, they'll, they'll tell you the story of your practice can be captured with those seven numbers and that one ratio. Yeah. Which simplifies it so much. I mean, you don't have to know all the numbers and the details behind all of that. If you know those seven numbers, right. It makes everything easier to, to understand. It also allows you to spot trends, right? So look at those numbers Absolutely. on a regular basis uh, and things continue moving in a positive way. You say, oh, we're doing the right thing. Just keep doing what we're right. doing, keep right. growing, doing the things. But if you see a trend happen somewhere in one of those numbers, you know something's wrong. You can dig in deeper to find out what it is and how to fix it before the end of the, the month or before the end of the year, which is or often how those, yeah. those problems reveal or themselves. Be, or before the cash runs out. The yeah. cash on hand runs out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you had said earlier, Rick, that um, your firm, when you uh, joined that firm, you were about 50 people and you grew it right. to 200 by the time right. that retired from that firm. Um, how important is growth? And remember that we're talking primarily to small firms and a lot of sole practitioners. Um, how important is firm size and how important is the concept of growth? Because there's a lot of architects out there that just I don't really want to grow. I want to do what I'm doing forever. Well, it, we, we've all heard the grow or die maxim that's out there. Uh, and I, I think that's a, that's nonsense. Um, I think that uh, that's the way we've been conditioned to think because we're all exposed to uh, uh, the world of business. For most of us, the exposure we get is, is big publicly traded um, companies uh, who, who uh, aspire to grow. They, they, and they talk about growth in terms of um, size. Now, when, when we go, when we go to a social event, starting to do that more, um, and somebody says, Hey, what do you do? And oh, I'm an architect. Oh, how big's your firm? Well, I have 12 people. Uh, nobody ever asks you, what's your net fee for your firm? <laughs> you know, cause probably you wouldn't tell them. And, and two, they, we measure by how many people we have, uh, which is kind of dumb. Because uh, you could be a, a big firm 
struggling because you're not having much F, uh, net fee per FTE. Um, so yeah, so growth doesn't really, uh, we, we kind of, we can fall into a trap uh, called the growth trap where we take on new work then we have to take on more people, which is great. And, and so because we're a really compassionate bunch, we tend to be, I think, we try to keep staff once we have them, we've invested in them, we try to keep those people. And so, so then we need to go get more work uh, when, you know, our, when our projects finish. Um, and then we start to take work that we shouldn't be taking because we're desperate not to lay people off. And so that increases our risk, it lowers our profitability, our cash flow suffers. And, uh, and so we get into this vicious cycle uh, and uh, mostly because we're just not ready to deal with our capacity issue quick enough. Uh, whenever you ask somebody, when should you have done, uh, reduce the size of your workforce? The answer is always a lot, lot before I did, you know, way before I did. Um, so, uh, so I think that's why, um, you know, if, if your if your practice is struggling, why do you think that taking on more work, getting bigger, uh, taking on more risk, taking on more liability, um, why does that make you stronger? It it doesn't. Yeah, I think we should be focusing on strength, not size. And then, if you want to grow, growth is fine. There's nothing wrong with growth as long as it's in support of your goals for your firm. Uh, if you want to stay a solo practitioner, nothing wrong with that. I think, I think though, having said that, um, I think you have to accept um, some of the some of the limitations of right. solo practice, right? Um, I was doing, uh, I did a little research. I, I pulled off the AIA website, um, the uh, from the small firm exchange. I pulled their, they do a, a salary survey, and uh, I pulled from there that solo practitioners get paid about twenty percent less than staff architects uh, on average. And so, so, you know, I think what that's saying is I, I don't the thing one thing I don't understand about solo practitioners, maybe Mark, you might know this, but I think a lot of them are kind of transitional. I'm, I'm a solo practitioner, but I'm in transition from partial retirement to full retirement. Um, and, and I think some, some solo practitioners are kind of starting a practice and they're just kind of figuring out, seeing if they can do it. Um, they may be transitioning to retirement. They may be, you know, there, I think there's a lot of transitional stuff there. And I think that might drag the average uh, compensation down for solo practitioners. But I think yeah. the, the, the strong ones are figuring out how to leverage their expertise, get higher contractors, hire, hire, um, outsource some of their, some of their product and get, uh, some of their execution stuff so that the stuff they're not good at or overpaid for gets done by somebody. Uh, so they have more leverage in their practice. I think the, those are the successful solo practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. And for every, all of those reasons are, are some of the reasons why, uh, solo practitioners are solo practitioners. Some of them are transition. Um, but there's a very large, percentage of solo practitioners who want to stay solo practitioners, that they've right. built the model around being a solo practitioner. Um, many of them are, are in order to live a specific lifestyle that they've chosen. It gives them the ultimate freedom and flexibility to control their life, you know, right. and do the things they want to do and work when they want to work and when work when they don't want to work. Um, and ultimately make as much money as that model will allow right. by growing in other ways, like you had mentioned, by hiring contractors. Um, but there are lots of limitations, right? There is a ceiling. At some point, if you want to grow financially to beyond the that that ceiling, you're going to have to in terms of staff because you need a project, people to right. help you. 
Yeah, I think the frustrating thing for solo practitioners is that, um, you know, you you work hard every day. Um, You may or may not be able to figure out how to take some vacation time or some sabbatical time. That's, you know, you're looking for flexibility, a lot of folks who are solo practitioners. Uh, And uh, and so it it makes it tough to... uh, uh, to function in that world. Um, uh, but again, it goes back to, you know, what are your goals? How are you positioned in the marketplace? What's your operating system? Because, you know, a solo practitioner has an operating system. Uh, they may have five contractors that they work with, uh, five uh, uh, drafts people. Yeah, 1099. Yeah, yeah, 1099 from anywhere in the world, um, uh, not just in the States. But uh, so, yeah, so I think those the successful ones are are more like orchestra leaders. They're they're orchestrating a, a practice as opposed to just trying to do everything because you you just these days buildings are too complicated. You can't do everything. You just can't do it at a at a high enough level to kind of make a decent living. Uh, so they don't have to sac- sacrifice so much, you know. Um, so I think the successful ones have figured that out. Um, and, uh, and, and that, and they've designed their, their practice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Edward Shannon wrote a book about it. Just plug that. It's, uh, I think it's solo practitioner architect or sole practitioner architect. Um, it's, uh, you know, anywhere books are, are sold. He's a solo practitioner and he wrote a book about how, uh, you can be a successful sole practitioner and talks about the limitations like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's very much an advocate of that model. Uh, supporter of that model and and acknowledges that for him it's a it's a it's lifestyle decision right that he right. wants to live his life in a very specific way and have total control over it and he does so, yeah uh, very interesting Rick I love your model I love the simplicity that you bring to uh, complicated subjects um, so I appreciate you for doing that before we wrap things up I would like you to answer that question. Uh, that everybody answers at the end of the show. What is one thing a small firm architect can do today to build a better business? Uh, well, I, I knew this question was coming. So uh, <laughs> so I, I, I actually, I must have listened to 50 or 60 podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and I must confess, I just skipped to the end on a lot of them um, to, to hear answers to these questions. And uh, uh, I think um, uh, most of the answers, not all, but most of the answers have been about the practice of design, how to be better practitioner. And um, I, I hope that maybe there'll be some uptake on this notion of the design of practice going forward and that we spend more time designing our practices. So, you know, what's the one thing uh, you can do today to uh, uh, build a better business for, for tomorrow, meaning pretty soon, not, not like a right. year away, but yeah, but tomorrow. Soon. So yeah, tomorrow. So, uh, so to me, the, the, the day after tomorrow, the answer is design your practice. Uh, that's, but I don't think you can, you can't do that in a day. So if you're going to do one thing today is go dig into your financials, go figure out where you are financially. And again, that's kind of establishing your current reality as a practice, because if you don't understand your, your numbers, your financial numbers. You don't understand your business. You may understand your practice, but you you won't understand your business. So you got to dig into those numbers. And uh, I think you know, grab your bookkeeper today, uh, and go sit down and say, you know, I heard this guy today talking about 
net fee and and FTEs and what are those numbers in my financial statement? Tell show me where they are here because I want to understand this. And I think you could do that today. Um, so I you know I truly understand that if you I, I think a lot of practitioners don't understand their financials, but even if you did, you still need to you still need to uh, keep an eye on those as you as you re- reposition and realign your practice, realign your operating positioning. So, so dig into your financials, understand your financials. That would be my message. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if every morning, every Monday morning, on your desk are those seven numbers? It could be there. You just tell your yeah. bookkeeper they got to put them there. Right. <laughs> That's all you right. got to do. And every every Monday you look at them, you're like, okay, there they are. Yeah. They look good. Let's move on. Or yeah. that one doesn't look good. Why? Why does that exactly. not look good? What do I need? Um, thank you, Rick. Uh, very, very interesting. His name is Rick Lindley. Strong Practice Strategies is the name of the firm. You can go to the website strongpracticestrategies.com and you can learn all about Rick. You can connect with them and say hi and ask him for his advice and all the things that you may be thinking about right now. The book is also there. You can learn about the book, Scoreboard Your Practice, Seven Numbers to Understand your design firm's financials. You can find that everywhere books are sold. Uh, I highly recommend it. I have read it. It is a good book. You should go read it too. It simplifies this complicated stuff for us architects. Uh, Rick, thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing, that you that you dedicated your life to doing this, to share your knowledge with the rest of the profession uh, so we can be better architects, so we can learn what we need to learn, so we can keep doing the things that we love doing. Um, our profession needs more people like you. And so I appreciate you for the work that you do, the book that you wrote, uh, and for coming by here and saying hi at Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, share a link with a friend. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of architects just like you. Please share a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I'd appreciate it. Links to all our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. It's the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at Gable Media at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Go check it out. We have, I think, 13 podcasts over there now. Gablemedia.com. And before we wrap up, a special thank you to our partners at Graphisoft for helping our community of architects make the transition to BIM with ARCHICAD software. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioning to help make your architecture firm a success. Visit graphisoft.com slash US slash Architect to learn more. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. 
where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.